Welcome to the podcast of Faith Presbyterian Church here in Clinton, Louisiana. I'm glad you found us. My name is Tony Piles, and I'm the pastor here. I pray this recording brings you encouragement and growth in Christ, and we would love for you to join us in person anytime you are in town. Check our website, faithchurchclinton.org, for our current schedule of worship and Bible studies. And may God bring you blessing through what you're about to hear. Thank you. Lord, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for coffee. We thank you for cake. We thank you for fellowship around the table. We thank you that we have grown up, live in an age where we have unprecedented access to your word. Just witnessed by the fact that we, we each have our own copy in front of us and many at home and the ability to pull up dozens more on something we carry around in our pocket. We pray that you would help us learn to treasure this precious gift, to live in your word, to be a people of the book, not for the sake of, of being nerdy and knowing the trivia, but for the sake of knowing you and knowing our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray that you would use our engagement of your word to make us more like your son. We ask these things in his precious name. Amen. We've mentioned that we end 1 Samuel with this series of cliffhangers. So chapter 28 was Saul and Endor as he sought word from the Lord and didn't get it. And so sought Samuel and got an oracle of doom instead of the news he wanted. We were with uh, David in chapter 27 before that. David among the Philistines. And although it didn't come to a head in that chapter, he's left in this terrible position where he's serving in the bodyguard of a Philistine commander. And the Philistines are on the march again against Israel. So what's going to happen? Is David going to end up on the wrong side of the battlefield? And how will he find himself out of that mess? We leave that unresolved to deal with Saul for a little bit. We left Saul in the dark at night at the end of chapter 28 with the news that he's going to die tomorrow together with his sons. And then we backtrack and we're with David again. We'll be with David for two chapters and it will answer some of the cliffhanger at the end of chapter 27. And then we'll resume the story of Saul with his death. Spoiler alert. In chapter 31. So we keep switching back and forth. And the narrator's holding our interest by ending each of these chapters or each of these episodes with this ominous to be continued. Right? It it solves some problems, raises others, and then hits pause and moves to talk about someone else for a bit. So, yes, sir. Yes, Achish is king in Gath. And this is not the first time that David has sought refuge with Achish. So for whatever reason, the narrator mentions that Achish is satisfied. David's found favor with him, but doesn't go into detail as to how that came about. And we'll see in, uh, in chapter 29 here, just because David's found favor with Achish does not mean he's found favor with the Philistines in general. 
Maybe they have a longer memory or are less trusting than Akish. There are a few interesting things going on in terms of the chronology of these events. The narrator's interest is in maintaining the suspense rather than narrating things in order. We know from what is said that chapter 28 is the night before the battle which happens in chapter 31. But chapters 29 and 30 take place over several days. And based on the geography, they actually happen earlier than chapter 28. But we keep switching back and forth to, to maintain our interest through that. Yes, sir. Where is Goliath from? Goliath is from Gath, which is where David is. Well, it's not where David is quartered. If you'll remember, he's removed to Ziklag, which is on the southern end, southern and eastern edge of Philistine territory facing the south of Judah. So on this map, you can see this is the south. So Philistia is there. Uh, Jerusalem. Let me see if I can do something here where I can mark this up. I don't know if that's going to work very well. We'll see. The Jerusalem is here. But you can see Ziklag is it's kind of on the border of Philistia and Judah. This would be Judah's territory, right? Beersheba is kind of the proverbial southernmost extremity of Israel. So we talk about from Dan to Beersheba, right? In the same way that in the U.S. we talk about from coast to coast. Because that's the, north, the southern extremity is Beersheba. Dan's territory was originally in the center, but they migrate to the north and judges. And so from Dan to Beersheba is the, the extremities from, from north to south. So Beersheba is here. Amalek is here. And the Negev is just a general term for desert wilderness, which describes this whole region. Really, Beersheba is really in the Negev. So kind of almost anything south of Hebron, almost all the way down to Egypt, that's Negev. Negev or Negev, depending on how your English translation puts it. Um, but Aphek is the hinge on these two maps. You can see Aphek at the very north end of this map, up in the left, top left corner. And then in this, and this shows David's movements south from Aphek back towards Ziklag. And then in this map... Aphek is in the, the middle left there. This shows the Philistines' movement north to engage the Israelites in battle. So David's moving away from the battle when he moves to Ziklag, whereas the Philistines are continuing past that point up toward the Jezreel Valley. And then we've got a, a closer map of it here. Uh, it's hard to tell, but this is all mountainous. This is all mountainous. This is all mountainous. This whole valley is called Jezreel. So the Israelites have come to Jezreel, which is in the valley. And when the Philistines come, they pull back up onto Mount Gilboa to try and, and get the high ground. And you can see where Endor is here. And we talked about that. When Saul goes to Endor, he probably has to sneak past Philistines in order to get there and then come back, which is part of the reason for his disguise that's noted. 
Well, that depends on whether you ask the Philistines or the Israelites. <laughs> and, and we'll see later, the Philistines live in the plains, and they're able to dominate the plains because they have iron chariots, like having tanks. But they can't drive their chariots in the hill country. And the Jezreel Valley kind of cuts from the coast over to the Jordan. And so the Philistines are able to almost cut Israel in half at the Jezreel Valley because they're able to dominate the Jezreel Valley, but they can't dislodge the Israelites from the hill country. So Endor is kind of, it's on the north side of the Jezreel Valley, but it's up in the hills. Gaza is the northern part of the Gaza Strip, and it goes south from the Gaza. So that's not part of, so the Philistines Actually not. So this is, this is the Jordan here. That's the Sea of Galilee. The Dead Sea would be down here. All right. So let's see. We approach the end of 1 Samuel and the culmination of Saul's removal and David's rise with these cliffhangers that we've noted. So David's in service to the Philistines in chapter 27. So he's serving the enemy of the people of God. Saul is desperate for a word from Yahweh that he will be delivered. Uh, but instead, he gets left in the dark with an oracle of doom in chapter 28. Uh, in chapter 29 that we're about to read, David is removed from serving the Philistines, at least in terms of the battle. Uh, at the same time, probably, that Paul is, or sorry, Saul is consulting the medium. And then David's got a deal with Ziklag and the Amalekites in chapter 30. And then Saul and his sons will meet their end. And Israel is left at the end of chapter 31 in a situation that parallels their lowest point in the book of Judges, where they're scattered, they're leaderless, and they're subservient to the Philistines. So kind of a preview of review and preview of where we're going. So let's read chapter 29. Now the Philistines had gathered their forces at Aphek, and the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel. So the Philistines are on their way. If we switch back. The Philistines are mustering here, and they're marching up the highway, and the Israelites are already in Jezreel. So they know that that's where the battle is going to take place. As the lords of the Philistines were passing on by hundreds and by thousands, and David and his men were passing on in the rear with the quiche. The commanders of the Philistines said, what are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me now for days and years? And since he deserted to me, I have found no fault in him to this day. But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him. And the commanders of the Philistines said to him, send the man back that he may return to the place to which you have assigned him. He shall not go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he become an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of the men here? Is not this David, of whom they sing to one another in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. Then Achish called David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you have been honest. And to me it seems right that you should march out and in with me in the campaign. For I have found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to me to this day. 
Nevertheless, the lords do not approve of you. So go back now and go peaceably that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. And David said to Achish, but what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord, the king? And Achish answered David and said, I know that you are as blameless in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said, he shall not go up with us to the battle. Now then rise early in the morning with the servants of your Lord who came with you and start early in the morning and depart as soon as you have light. So David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines, but the Philistines went up to Jezreel. Yes, sir. Why does he swear in the Lord's name? That is a very good question. And in fact, this is the only mention of the Lord during David's time with the Philistines, which is a really good question. Why? Why do we hear no mention? We know that David explicitly commented to Saul about being cut off from the Lord and being driven out of Israel. Perhaps it was unsafe for David to openly worship the Lord it was perceived as an Israelite God in the territory of the Philistines. That's a really good question. How come the Lord appears in Achish's mouth and not David's? That's a really good question. And what else? Just being deceptive and saying that he wanted to go. Because it seems like that was exactly what he wanted. I do think maybe he's being deceptive and maybe even duplicitous. Like, don't throw me in yeah. the prior path. Well, even more than that, there's a very careful ambiguity in what David says. If you notice their conversation, right? Akish, who has been so thoroughly duped, right? He says, you have been honest. And we as readers of the text are going, yeah, right. <laughs> no, he hasn't, right? And to me, it seems right that you should march out and in, for I have found nothing wrong. It's like, well, have you looked? Because there's plenty for you to have found if you looked. I mean, David's been careful, but how careful can you be when you're destroying whole towns, right? Nevertheless, the lords do not approve of you. And there's a subtle change, right? The narrator had mentioned it's the commanders of the Philistines. So we're talking about military leaders. And Akish mentions the lords of the Philistines, right? And I don't know if there's this careful division between. Uh, military and civil leadership among the Philistines. I've got no idea. I suspect probably not, but that's an interesting difference in phrasing. But notice David's very careful reply in verse eight. But what have I done? And he doesn't leave that hanging because somebody might answer. He immediately qualifies that with what have you found? He already knows Akish has found nothing. Akish just said that. What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now? But note David's change. He's been using second person, but now he switches back to a polite third person way of speaking that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my Lord, the King. Akish clearly hears and understands David as protesting. Why can't I go fight for you? Haven't I demonstrated that I'm trustworthy? 
But David's words could be understood and leave open the possibility that David intended to go out and fight for Saul, although it would probably be suicide for him to do so, to stand on the battlefield surrounded by Philistines and turn against them. But the ambiguity in David's words leave open that possibility. So I think there's two things there. Yeah, I think there's the don't throw me in the briar patch, right? But there's also the, why not, right? Why can't I go fight for my Lord, the King, who happens to be Saul, right? Amos, Ezra, saw a hand over here. Oh, you answered my question. Was the least of the Philistine leaders because he was last? I don't know. If I was headed out to battle, I think I'd prefer to be in the rear, right? That's a question I... Yeah. Uh, you know, when they were in their parade mm-hmm. mode or however, he was last. That could mean a lot of things. Yeah. Not significant then. Maybe it means he's furthest. So he's traveled the furthest. He's the last to arrive at the muster. Maybe it means he's the one in command, right? And so he, his headquarters were at the rear of the column. I suspect if he was the one in command, he would have been able to carry the day, though. But yeah, I don't think we have enough information to develop the significance of him being last. I think David comes last because he's part of Akish's bodyguard rather than part of the frontline shock troops, so to speak. It makes David looks a lot like a mercenary. Well, he absolutely is a mercenary, right? He is fighting for Akish for pay. He is absolutely a mercenary. Sometimes we give these guys a whole lot of credit and not see God's hand working in their hearts to change their minds. You talk about, about the seed of our Lord and Jesus who is about to go out and fight against Israel. And I just think God's working on both sides. Yeah. Maybe change. David really did want to attack the Philistines. I mean, think of the route that they're engaged with Israel when he attacks them from the rear. I mean, it could turn into a route. To save David, but he didn't have a lot of men. It wouldn't take a lot. Not just a Yeah. What David's intention is, the Lord prevents us from having the opportunity to find out. The narrator doesn't reveal it to us. And if David's having to figure it out as he goes along, well, at this point, he no longer has to figure it out because of the way the Lord intervenes. Um, yeah. yeah, David was in a terrible, like unimaginably difficult place. He had these promises from the Lord, but now because of all of these things, some of which were in David's control, a lot of which were not, he ends up in this situation where it looks like he's going to encounter Saul on the battlefield in the pay of the Philistines. What's going to happen? But the Lord intervenes in this dispute between Philistine commanders and diverts that from even happening. There are a couple of delightful details that um, are easy to miss reading it in English that are, are part of this exchange as well. One of them is the way the Philistines refer to David and his men. They call them the Hebrews. And that doesn't strike us as all that interesting. Like, of course, they're Hebrews, right? But that's an ethnic term 
that is maybe more general than Israelite, but it also is a pun with the verb pass over or pass by used in the previous verse. Um, Maybe it's implying something about their character that they might pass over to the other side. Maybe it's implying something about their dependability. Um, We don't know, but there's this interesting pun between that verb and the term they choose to use in a clearly derogatory manner to refer to David and his men. The, the name Hebrews in verse 3 and the verb for passing on in verse 2. They, they share the same root. They would sound the same. Avar and Ivrit. So same consonants. The other one is in verse 4. Uh, the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him. The commanders said, send the men back, right? He shall not go down lest he become an adversary to us. How could he reconcile himself to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of the men here? Well, that was a typical Philistine way of treating dead bodies is to behead them. It will happen with Saul later. David did it to Goliath. What's not immediately clear to us is the word for bodyguard, which is used to refer to David and his position in serving a quiche is keeper or guarder of the head. So the position that a quiche has given David actually belies the danger that the other Philistines fear David poses. He's a quiche's headhunter, and they're afraid he's going to hunt heads. All right, what else do you see? Yes, a quiche is like salt. Okay. Develop that. How is a quiche like Saul? He doesn't act, like he doesn't check where David's going. He doesn't sit. He doesn't think David will need anyone sitting with him, and he doesn't really. He has to be told things. It seems. I think you're onto something there. There's a similarity, but also a contrast. David is in a quiche's service, in the same position in which he initially served Saul. You're right. A quiche like Saul has no idea what's happening around him. And people have to tell him. But David has favor with a quiche, whereas Saul is suspicious of David from the very beginning. And Saul heard that chant, right? Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was jealous. The quiche hears that chant and he's like, yeah, he's effective. I want him in this job. So I think you're right. There's, there's a similarity, but there's also... A contrast there. In the third chapter, there's another sort of allusion to the ambiguity you're talking about because the commanders said, uh, is this not David, servant of Saul, king of Israel? And then later on, David's complaining that he's not being allowed to, be allowed to fight for his king. So which king was he referring to? Yes. There's something else that's interesting in this chapter that did not occur to me. I had to read it and think about it, and go, okay, that makes sense. I've read it in Firth's commentary. He got it from Walter Brueggemann's commentary. So I'm getting this third hand. But think about triangulation. When somebody wants something, they talk to somebody else, and you end up with this triangle of people instead of people dealing with each other directly. It happens in this chapter because the Philistines have a beef with David. 
but they deal with it through a quiche. And so a quiche is stuck in the middle of that. David is essentially put on trial by the Philistines, but without ever being able to appear directly before his accuser. And Achish three times affirms David's innocence, even though the Philistine leaders continually assert his guilt. That also occurs in the accounts of Jesus' trial, this triangulation between the Jews and Jesus and Pilate. And three times Pilate asserting Jesus' innocence, but the Jews maintaining his guilt despite that. As an interesting relationship between David's portrayal here and Jesus' trial in the Gospels. You'll see that in Luke 23 and John 18 and 19. The irony here is that from the Philistine perspective, David really is guilty. And Achish can't see his innocence. So there's a contrast there. Or Achish can only see his innocence. But from Israel's perspective... David's innocent of the one thing that matters. Because of the Lord's intervention, he does not end up on the opposite side of the battlefield from Saul and Israel. But isn't the whole debacle taking place in in an area where God wants to be their king and God will fight their battles? We're told that early on in the Old Testament. And so this whole thing is all, okay, God God lets them go, and it's all, all it's headed towards failure. If, if, if they're out of obedience to God in the first place, they, they didn't want that. God didn't want to have a king. They, they insisted on Saul in the first place. And then they were never to have an army. God was going to fight their battles. That's going to be a huge... Yeah, well, that's going to be the big to be continued at the end of chapter 31. Okay. Saul, the king they asked for, whose name means you asked for it, he's out of the way. But... The Lord chose David without Israel asking for him. Is he, you know, what's it going to look like now that Saul's out of the way for the second Lord's anointed to find his way to the throne over a united people of God? It's not going to happen in 2 Samuel chapter 1. I know we haven't, we're not reading it for the first time, but spoiler if we're reading it again for the first time. It's not going to happen for a few chapters. A lot's going to happen in between. But the final couple sentences of that quote that I was reading where Firth was referring to Brueggemann's observations. David is not just lucky. Akish may be the only one here to name Yahweh, but the longer narrative makes clear that Yahweh is indeed present with David. And that's a good reminder to later, even Israelite readers. Think about um, someone sitting in exile reading this, wondering whether the Lord can be present with them if they're driven from the land. And they see that despite everything that David has done in the midst of this, the Lord is with him and present and working things out to, for, in David's favor and for his good. All right. So the problem of David serving with the Philistines against Israel And perhaps killing Saul, after all, is resolved. Because he's dismissed from his role in the battle. He's sent back home, right? Go back to the barracks, except the barracks are the opposite direction. And three days march, as we'll see. 
um, which means what's taking place in chapter 31 is, is happening during the events of chapter 30. So that's not the only reason that the narrator is telling us what happens in chapter 29 and chapter 30. But by communicating all of that to us, making it as clear as it could possibly be without drawing us a map, and we do have maps, that David is as far away from this as he could be. There's stuff happening in Little Rock, but David got sent back to New Orleans, right? He wasn't there. Shall we read chapter 30? Let's do it. Now, when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, right, so three days march the wrong direction from Aphek away from the battle, right? The Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one. They carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And David said to Abiathar, the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David. And David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered him, pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. So David set out and the 600 men who were with him, and they came to the brook Besor, where those who were left stayed uh, behind stayed. But David pursued he and 400 men. 200 stayed behind. They were too exhausted to cross the brook Besor. They found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David. And they gave him bread and he ate. They gave him water to drink and they gave him a piece of a cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived. For he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. And David said to him, to whom do you belong? And where are you from? He said, I am a young man of Egypt, servant to an Amalekite. And my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. We had made a raid against the Negev of the Cherethites and against that which belongs to Judah and against the Negev of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said to him, Will you take me down to this band? And he said, Swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to this band. And when he had taken him down, behold, they were spread abroad over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing, because of all the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day. And not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken. And David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds. And the people drove the livestock before him and said, this is David's spoil. Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David and who had been left at the brook Besor. 
And they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near to the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, Because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. But David said, You shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. And he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. When David came to Ziklag, he sent part of the spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, Here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. It was for those in Bethel, in Ramoth of the Negev, in Jatir, in Aroer, in Sifmoth, in Eshtemoah, in Rakal, in the cities of the Jeremielites, in the cities of the Kenites, in Horma, in Bor-Ashan, in Athach, in Hebron, for all the places where David and his men had roamed. So Abiathar is with David after Ziklag is plundered, so presumably he wasn't there when it happened. He'd actually gone with David to the battle. Isn't there some irony in the Lord's priest going and lining up on the side of the Philistines against the people of God? Yes. Yes, there is. And where's Abiathar been this whole time? I mean, he, it seems like he's been with David, but we've not heard mention of Abiathar since chapter 23. Neither Abiathar, nor the ephod, nor any kind of priest. So we've gone, what, seven chapters without hearing anything about him? Good. What else? Pretty effective way to get him to move back to Judah. When burned the, burn the town down, they've got to go someplace. So yeah. It's kind of set up real good for them to go back to Judah. Yeah, oh darn, Ziklag's burned. Guess we got to go back to Judah. So Ziklag is right on the border, right? It's, it's kind of, it's the garrison that sort of defines the boundary between Philistia and Judah. So it's interesting that the Amalekites don't seem to have specifically targeted Ziklag. Like they're, they're raiding the whole area, both sides of the border. But Ziklag's the only place they burn. Maybe David was not effective in suppressing news of his activities as he thought he was. Or maybe they just recognized this is a Philistine garrison. If we burn it to the ground, we'll be able to raid more freely. That is interesting. They raid all over the place. The Ziklag's the only place they burn. David's not been leaving survivors, though. It seems like if they burned it because they recognized this is the guy who's been taking out our villages, then they would treat it in kind. Yeah, so whether they knew specifically of David or whether they just recognized that this is probably the Philistine garrison that has been destroying our towns and towns in the area, or even just more generally than that, the presence of this garrison represents a threat to us, right? Not necessarily. It's in Philistine territory. It had belonged to the Philistines before. It was given to David for him to dwell there. I don't know that that necessarily means he displaced 
any Philistines who were also living there. Don't know. I think there's a building contrast between Saul and David that's multi-layered. And I think part of it has to do with Saul's inability to effectively inquire of the Lord and get a favorable answer, or as David does. And there's so much to that, right? Saul's already been rejected, and he wants a message from the Lord that is essentially non-rejection. Um, Saul killed an entire family of priests, whereas David provided sanctuary to a priest who fled for refuge. There's more to it than that as well. I think it's also where we're, we're moving toward, although it's still a long road, we're moving toward David being installed as God's chosen king, as opposed to the people's chosen king. I think that's all part of it. I also think we're, we're marking this transition back into Israelite territory with David. And so inquiring of, worship of, mention of the Lord is resuming in the text. David was greatly distressed. He says that David strengthened himself in the Lord of God. Yes. So he yes. looked to God, obviously, for his strength. And to, obviously, if they're talking about stoning him, he, he, was, he would be distressed, all right? I think that's a key verse in the chapter. That was, which verse was that? The verse 6? Verse 6. Yeah. Chapter 30, verse 6, right? David is feeling the intense pressure. He has lost wives also. The narrator makes it very clear that David's not insulated from the loss that all his men are experiencing. But he's also not insulated from their bitterness. And they're directing it against him. In that moment of deep distress, David seeks the Lord in verse 6. Thank you for, for highlighting that, Mr. Clyde. Compare that to Saul in his deep distress in chapter 28. He inquired by every means available, right? I want... My devotional, I want your Bible, I want the horoscope, I want Fox News, I want the lady who reads crystal balls from the street corner, right? Anything you can get me. And Saul met that distress with despair. And so he sought a medium. Let's just bring up dead Samuel and see if he'll answer my calls, right? If we're going to wake him up from the grave. But David inquires through it, right? David strengthens his hand in God and acts rather than tries to inquire and despairs. Saul gets no answer. David does. And he gets a favorable answer at that. Well, couldn't you say that Saul was attempting in a bad way to get to seek the Lord's counsel by calling, having the medium call up Samuel? I think... At that point, Saul is pursuing any counsel. Um, I think we've gotten to the point in chapter 28 where Saul does seek the Lord's counsel, um, but he's seeking any counsel, not just the Lord's counsel. And since he can't get the Lord, 
he tries through illicit means to inquire of Samuel. Maybe Samuel will answer it. Since we haven't heard David consult with Abathar or the Lord for quite a few chapters, is this way that God had to give his attention? I mean, it's a pretty hard way to get the attention, but I mean, he wake up, you know? I mean, it's, it's like we haven't heard anything from David a long time from the Lord. Yeah. That's something that the narrator conceals from us, right? We don't know what David's spiritual condition was like throughout his time with the Philistines. We know that at this point, he inquires of the Lord. He strengthens his hand in the Lord and then inquires through the prophet who's presumably been with him the whole time. But we have no reason to think that, that Abiathar has been somewhere else in the meantime because he's right there with David now which, as you mentioned, brings up this whole question about the priest opposite the Israelites. But we don't get a window into what that was like for David spiritually. The closest thing we get to a window into that is that Achish swears in the Lord's name, which is not something Achish would generally have done as a Philistine. He would have sworn by his own gods. He would have sworn by Dagon or Ashtaroth, but he swears by the Lord's name. Perhaps he knew enough of David and David's character that he knew that that would mean something to David. Seems like it was almost a wake up or something. You know, just it, it, to go and burn everybody's home and take the kids and everything. I mean, that, that's not just for, for hey, you know, you're not doing what you need to do. <laughs> it's not quite a you've got mail. Definitely gets his attention. The very same phrasing used in verse 8, and David inquired of the Lord, uh, was used of Saul in chapter 28 and verse 6. But David gets an answer, uh, and Saul didn't. Uh, we've mentioned that before. And, and even when he, when he gets to Samuel, right? Samuel's like, why are you asking me since the Lord didn't answer you? And he, he repeats things he's already told Saul and then makes that pronouncement of doom more specific. It says, tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. Whereas David inquires through the priest and gets a favorable answer. Uh, notice verse 12. Right? This is another contrast in these situations where Saul and David are both seeking answers. Right? There's this hospitality that David grants to this slave that they run across. A famished Saul receives hospitality from that manipulative medium who's probably hoping to put herself in Saul's good graces so that he doesn't remember that he kicked all the mediums out of the land and killed her for being the messenger, right? Whereas here, David receives a favorable answer and then he extends hospitality in compassion to this slave. A very different position relative to the hospitality, a very different nature in the hospitality granted as well. But they're both trying to get something. Like he wants information. Sure. Yeah, he wants information. But but given who he's speaking to, especially as the situation develops, right, he could have squeezed him for information instead of granting him hospitality. The um Egyptian guy seems to know pretty much who David is. 
Yeah, he doesn't seem to be, have any questions. Like, who are you? Where are you from? Why do you want to know this stuff? And there are a couple of interesting things to note about this Egyptian fellow. In the first place, what he says about the raids matches what the narrator told us at the beginning of the chapter. He offers more detailed information, but what he says corresponds to what the narrator said, which would seem to indicate to us that he is trustworthy. But what's his explanation for how he ended up found by David and his men? He was left behind because he fell sick three days ago, right? But what's he worried that David might do? Yeah. Or hand him over to his master, right? If he fell sick and got left behind, what's he got to be afraid of? Yeah, he seems more right. um, threatened by his master than David. Yeah. And it may be that his master is abusive, right? There's lots of explanations that could be part of that. It could also be that he didn't get sick. He ran away. So there's, he's, a, he's a more complicated character than you, you get necessarily on a, on a first reading. But the, the geography suggests that the Amalekites, right? The Amalekites are not Philistines. They're not Israelites. They're not friends with either one of them. They live to the south. As you move out of Judah toward Egypt, in that region in between, that's Amalekite territory. And it looks like they've just come north in the plains, the kind of straddling the border between Judah and Philistia. And they've just raided all over and burned Ziklag. And now they're headed back home. With everything. And you take what the narrator says and what the slave says, and that, that all seems to fit that picture. They've come up out of their territory, they've made some trouble, they've had some fun, they've got some booty. Yeah, yeah. Or pirates. Yeah. Another would David have found them if it hadn't been for the Egyptian? We don't know. Uh, in verse uh, verse thirteen of maybe uh you know, that, to me, that's the hand of God to, to give David then to know where they are so he can go directly and take care of it. Yeah. One thing we know is that the, um, so far, the Amalekites have left all the people alive. So if David can get to them quickly, then maybe he can recover the people. But if there's a lapse of time, right, then they may decide to kill some of them, or take some of them into their own harems, or sell them off as slaves. And so could he have tracked the Amalekites down eventually? Probably. But apart from God's providential working through this slave, could he have found them quickly enough to recover the people? Probably not. Yeah. Certainly expedited it for Yeah. One other thing, the difference between Saul and David, yeah, Saul forbid his men even eat. And David offered food to the slave, but he was uh, needing nourishment. Yeah. There are so many layers of contrast that are being highlighted between David and Saul. And one of them, again, is the Amalekites. And on the one hand, right, chapter 15 is where Saul is sent to deal with the Amalekites and doesn't. And that's kind of far removed from chapter 30. And so you wonder, like, okay, maybe there's supposed to be a comparison here. Maybe there's not, except that 
in Samuel's words to Saul in chapter 28, he specifically mentions again the Amalekites. 28 verse 18. Everything I've said that the Lord is going to do, the Lord's going to do. Verse 18, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. And so in the words of Samuel, the narrator has very carefully and deliberately reminded us of Saul's failures against the Amalekites. Just a little bit before narrating for us David's victory against the Amalekites. It does a few things for us, right? One, it explains how the Amalekites could be around to do this. And it presents a situation where Saul's in the north facing off with the Philistines. And we've got a pretty good idea how that's going to go. While in the meantime, David is in the south experiencing victory against the Amalekites. What else do you see? I guess the people that were left behind had to get got the same amount as the people that went and killed the Amalekites. Yeah, there's something interesting there, right? David keeps not listening to his men. Saul does listen to his men, specifically in regard to the Amalekites and spoil. And that means his downfall. David does not listen to his men. And not only does he not listen to his men, he speaks to them. So there are two levels of contrast there. One is in relation to the Amalekites, right? Saul listens to his men, is led into sin. David um, answers them and avoids the sin. Also, this mention of worthless fellows. uh, Back at the end of chapter 10, verse 27, when Saul is first assuming the throne, there are these worthless fellows who have a few things to say and Saul just lets it rest and chooses not to speak to them. It says he held his peace. And we asked the question way back when we were reading chapter 10, is that positive, neutral, or negative? We we didn't really have an answer at the time. But here, men who are characterized the same way have something to say that could cause deep division And instead of letting it sit or shrugging it off or going with their suggestion, David addresses them, but he addresses them in a gentle and persuasive way. I mean, on the one hand, he's kind of direct, but but he doesn't send them packing. He's not harsh. He's persuasive in changing their mind about what to do with the spoil. Pretty strategic to send some to the Judah elders. Yes. That was pretty strategic. Yeah. So given the territory that the Amalekites raided, some of what David is sending is probably what the Amalekites took from those towns. But it's also David is strengthening his political connections. He's also using that occasion to spread the news of his defeat of the Philistines, uh, which he calls, right? People call it David's spoil. But David refers to it as spoil from the Lord's enemies, right? He doesn't take credit in his, in his sending that, those gifts. So important to share it with everybody, you think? Yes. Yeah, for David, this is the Lord's victory against the Amalekites, not David's victory. 
against the Amalekites and not David and his 400 of 600 with victory against the Amalekites. It's the Lord who has given this victory against the Amalekites. That brings up another contrast, right? How come Saul couldn't take spoil, but did, but David takes spoil. If we look at back at chapter 15, Saul is given a direct command to go to Amalek, make war on them and not take anything that belongs to them. David does not have that kind of command and what he takes from them was not their property, but the property of those that they had raided in Judah and among the Philistines. So that's a, another difference in those interactions with the Amalekites. Uh, as actually uh, the leadership of David, because if you had men so exhausted that they couldn't go on, and instead of insisting they go anyway, uh, that would be just hindering you from moving forward <clears throat> where he left them behind and perhaps even there were some supplies and things left with them to that they were to guard while David was gone. You know. Yes. That <clears throat> would have made a logical sense for me. Yeah. Yeah, the portrait that develops as we compare this with, with other examples of, of battle where some are left and some go, is that probably they're left with the baggage to guard it. And if the precedent set here is that the people left behind to guard the baggage don't get any of the spoil, who's going to stay with the baggage? And it's, it's also a reminder to those worthless fellows that it's the Lord's victory, not not our victory. That's the same way with, with us as sinners. It don't matter if we, how what time in our life we uh, accept the Lord as our Savior, we're still redeemed. Yep. But we still bristle against that, don't we? I mean, depending on which side of the interaction we're on, right? I mean, if, if we were some of the ones... I mean, if we were the ones who went with David, we would have been like, what do you mean they get an equal share? But if we were the ones who stayed behind, we would have been joyfully celebrating. Like, yeah. You think of Jesus' parable of the laborers, right? If we'd been hired at the beginning of the day, we'd be like, how come that guy gets a denarius? But if we'd been hired at the ninth or 10th or 11th hour, we would have been so glad. Well, you can see where they come from, though, because there were probably some people killed or wounded. And, you know, sorry, I'll volunteer for the baggage. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, that's the flip side, right? If he didn't share, nobody would stay with the baggage. But now that they get an equal share, I don't know, maybe everybody's going to want to stay with the baggage. Going to have to cast lots next time. You know, there was mercy shown by the enemy since they took the children and the women instead of slaughtering them. I suspect if they had been allowed to keep them a little bit longer, we would not see that as a mercy. Yeah, yeah, I don't think it was... Fought, you know, and that's not the way they fight now, i.e. October yeah. 7th. Yeah, I, I suspect that was mercy on God's part and not on the part of the Amalekites. I imagine they, uh, they had ends in mind for the people they kept alive, whether it be slavery or ransom or war brides or other such things. All right, well, I don't think we should go on to chapter 31, although I want to. But it's 7-11, it's already dark. So, do 31 on the 31st. Shall we do 31 on the 31st? Yeah.
we go. <laughs> 31 on the 31st. Since we couldn't have the witch of Endor on Halloween, we'll have the death of Saul instead. Let's pray. Lord, thank you again for the gift of your word. Thank you for how it clearly displays to us your watchful care, your providence and the protection of David and his men and their families in your working both covertly and overtly to place your chosen king on the throne over your people for the way you protect your people in spite of their leaders. Uh, And we thank you for the ways that that points us to the Lord Jesus. We pray that you would continue to draw us deeper into your word, that we might be granted a deeper understanding, might see more of ourselves and more of the wonder of your grace. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the podcast of Faith Presbyterian Church here in Clinton, Louisiana. Check our website, faithchurchclinton.org, for more teaching and for our current schedule of events if you'd like to drop in. We pray this recording has been a blessing to you. Go in peace.